0: What compelled you to pursue librarianship?
1: I was an English literature major, and I didn't want to teach, <laughs> essentially.
0: <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Anne Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 237. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader, What Should I Read Next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read, Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, it's been a horrible week in the United States and here in my city of Louisville, which, like many cities, has been home to protests spurred by the killings of George Floyd and Louisville resident Breonna Taylor and others. Many people are hurting, and we especially want to acknowledge the pain our Black readers and listeners are experiencing right now. This is a good time to remind everyone that we don't just talk about books around here because reading is our favorite pastime, our preferred escape, our means to live a thousand lives instead of just one. Talking books and reading with you here is all those things, but it's also serious business. We believe reading changes hearts and minds, and changed people change the world. It's an honor and a privilege to share books with you every week that just might change your life and, as a result, change our world. We're sharing resources for our readers right now in our newsletter and on our show notes page that for this episode is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 237. We will continue to do those things. Also, if you haven't yet listened, I'd like to point you towards three What Should I Read Next episodes with guests I admire and trust as I continue my own work of becoming anti-racist. This is not exhaustive, but these are three good places to start. Oshita Moore is in episode seven. It's called Books That Uplift and Inspire, The Books That Hook You, and Filling the Brown Girls Bookshelf. Lamar Giles came on episode 186, finding the book that feels like it was written just for you. And finally, Tracy Thomas appeared on episode 162, The Best Bad Ending You Will Ever Read. Here at What Should I Read Next, we are continuing to read and to listen as we create episodes that we hope, in a small way, not only make your reading lives better, but make this world a better place and a safer place for everyone. Alyssa Gould is an academic librarian and recovering English major, as she puts it, whose goal is to get caught up on her own backlist while she's separated from her natural habitat, the library. And you know me, when I hear English major, my ears perk up. I have a lot of ideas for Alyssa and the phrase compare and contrast along with a whole slew of literary terms from your school days, well, they're going to come up today. We're shuffling around the 100 or so on red books lying around Alyssa's house into a few smaller stacks for a self-styled literature curriculum that should keep her busy at home for as long as necessary. I hope that sounds delightful, not daunting, because in my book, book flights are a ton of fun. Let's get to it. Alyssa, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Anne.
0: Oh, well, it's a pleasure to talk books and reading with you today, what I imagine is sure our favorite subject.
1: Always.
0: (laughs) Although I've seen your Instagram account, so I don't know, I would think that sewing and crafting would be right up there for you.
1: Yes, it's a close tie between the two. I think um, reading came first in my life and all the sewing and crafting came later, but they're both great outlets.
0: Do you ever combine them or is it one or the other?
1: Actually, I've gotten into audiobooks while I'm sewing now, because uh-huh. it's kind of a nice use of something to do with my hands while I'm listening to something. Um, as long as I'm doing a craft that I kind of have done before, there's not too many instructions involved, I can do them at the same time. If it's a brand new like sewing pattern that I've never done before, I have to focus and can't listen to a book while I do that.
0: You are reading my mind because I was just wondering if you need to pause it at the tricky parts. My mom was a seamstress. So I sewed as a child and like made my own clothes in high school. I thought that was really fun. But I was just re reminded maybe four or five years ago how sewing is sneaky because it looks like you're working with soft materials and it looks like an art project, but really it's. All math, like mm-hmm. figuring out how to turn something upside down and backwards in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I would definitely have to pause it.
1: Yeah. On, um, I think it was the Pantsy Politics podcast um one of the hosts was talking about sewing and how she hated it because it was math and ironing two things she hated doing (laughs) yeah it kind of is when you think about
0: it (laughs) that must be sarah stewart holland who i've talked about sewing with before i think so and she is a what should i read next alum as well i think she's episode 39 books to cure a hamilton hangover but when you look at a dress you don't think math
1: you really don't. Um, I've had to enlist my husband a few times to help me like fit an outfit to me to adjust the pattern. And um, yeah, it's not his favorite thing either, but um, it's nice to have another human to help you get the fit just right. Not as easy as you would think.
0: No, and after indulging in a project like that, I have so much more appreciation for how the things I take for granted get made. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that's so applicable to the reading life as well. I'm fascinated by how a great book comes together because if the author does it really well, it looks effortless. It wasn't a bunch of like banging your head against the desk, engineering, 17 rounds of edits. Do you appreciate the behind the scenes of the writing life as a reader?
1: I think we'll see in one of my picks later actually I do kind of like that inner peek at things. I don't ever want to be that myself. I don't want to be a writer, but I enjoy seeing how it works, you know, behind the curtain, looking in the seams, that kind of thing. I think with all the access we have to information now too, it's so much easier to hear an actual author tell how something came to being. And I also enjoy hearing how different it is for each person. It's not the same exact process for everyone. And that's just really interesting to see how that happens.
0: That's really interesting. It's true. I imagine in days gone by, all we could do was speculate, about the writing process. But now we can hear the author talk about it so much, and I am looking at your Goodreads list right now, Mm -hmm. and I'm seeing a little (laughs) bit of that theme you're talking about here, which is fun. Okay, speaking of behind the scenes, what we are doing today is dissecting your owned but unread shelf, because it's harder right now to bring new books into our lives.
1: It definitely is. Our public library has been closed physically for two months and probably at least two more. So I'm missing my easy access to brand new print books right now. So yeah, I'm looking at what's on my shelf instead.
0: You mentioned that you did read a lot of new books. You must have a great well-stocked library. It sounds like you get them almost exclusively from the library.
1: I spend very little of my own money on books. I prefer to borrow them from the library. As a librarian, I'm kind of supporting my cause here, but I really do enjoy getting them from the library without having to spend the cash to know, oh, is this worth my money or not? It's kind of where I get into that battle in my head on things, and so I enjoy borrowing them. And we also have a really good selection of ebooks and audiobooks as well, so that helps right now when the physical branches are closed to get access to some new content. But I would still like to go back and read the older things I've collected that are on my shelves.
0: Is this a desire that predated the cut off access to so many new print titles?
1: Yeah, I think it really was helpful to find Whitney Connard's Instagram account called The Unread Shelf.
0: I love Whitney.
1: She's so great at supporting actually trying to read from your own shelves and very encouraging about it.
0: Readers, if you want to hear more, Whitney was on the podcast in episode 158 The Life Changing Magic of Clearing Your Unread Shelf. So that was good inspiration for you.
1: Yeah. I like that she has the annual challenge where you can kind of pick out a book from your shelves that fits 12 different themes throughout the year to kind of spur your thoughts on where to even go with reading off your shelf. In April, she had a book bingo challenge that was really fun. Some people completed the whole thing and they got bingo every direction. I got bingo in maybe two directions in April, (laughs) but it still helped pick what to read next.
0: Well, your unread shelves are not as daunting as many are.
1: I don't think I feel too intimidated by it I have been culling the shelves regularly I've moved a few times um, in my adult life so every time is a chance to kind of weed through and see what I want to actually read later and what I don't and so I think this is a pretty good representation of what I genuinely want to read I just get distracted by those new releases that I can get at the library
0: oh (laughs) I along with many readers can really relate to that Something that we have talked about on What Should I Read Next before is The Tyranny of the Library, (laughs) where you find that new release that you know is in high demand and there's a waiting list behind you. So you want to read it. And so what it does is it jumps to the front of the line because you only have, it's three weeks in my system. What is it in yours? Same at mine. So you have three weeks. So you have to read it now or you're going to go to the bottom of the line and it feels like the time is right. So if this happens over and over and over again, then you do end up reading all those new books, which is great. It's amazing, except that you do it at the expense of the old. And I'm describing my experience. Does that resonate with you?
1: Yes, I have a very similar one. And I think also that I've trained to be beholden to that three-week deadline and the the penalty, I guess, of having the book taken away from me if I'm not finished. So it helps me read faster. But then when there's no penalty or, you know, deadline behind what
0: I own mm-hmm. it's
1: always there it's always at my disposal then it kind of fades into the background I guess and I kind of forget about it sometimes unless yeah, that's so true my physical access to the library is taken away from
0: me <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange time for libraries and you're a librarian there are lots of different kinds of librarian work would you tell us a little bit about what your job entails
1: so I specialize in academic libraries. So I'm a very frequent customer of my public library. I don't often read the books at the academic library uh, because it's a little bit more dry and research-like. But I specialize in the electronic content that we gather, which is actually perfect for right now. Just all the databases and ebooks and e-journals, and we also have a lot of streaming videos at our library. And so my responsibility is how to get the electronic materials, how to license them, get the paid for according to our parameters, just kind of like the behind the scenes of getting an electronic item from the publisher into our online system so then a patron can get to it. And then also troubleshooting that resource when it's not behaving as you expect. (laughs) Which we see a lot in these internet heavy days.
0: (laughs) My family has been checking out more ebooks than we have in ages. Um, We're also buying a ton of books from our local independent bookstore. I'm really lucky that those two institutions are very close to each other in my town because I go to both all the time, but Mm -hmm. we have fewer ways to get books. Yes, Actually, a struggle we're having right now is we do everything on my card. Everybody has their own cards but we find out that then people forget and our funds which are already significant become astronomical because there's a $10 cap on one account but if you extrapolate that to six users, then we'd be giving the library 60 bucks every three weeks. And we support our library, but I'd rather do it on purpose and not feel like it's just because I couldn't manage my items taken out. So, all that being said, we can have five ebooks out on this card at a time. And managing all that is like, oh, who's going to read what when? You got to read that book because somebody else is waiting to check out this other one. But it works seamlessly. It's so simple when it works well, which is mm-hmm. almost all the time in my experience. But I know that that's because there's a a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes and getting that content patron ready, not just mm-hmm. for the eBooks, but for all those other resources you named. Yes. What do you think patrons would be really surprised to find out about what you do and how electronic resources work?
1: Probably what would surprise folks the most is I'd say how my family responds to my job where they think that I do tech support, <laughs> which is <laughs> not quite true, but it kind of is. We're in a funny position where the librarians are in the middle of the vendor who sells the content and produces that great database or that great ebook, and then the patron on the other end. And there's a lot that can go wrong in between the vendor and the library, and the library and the patron. Working back through a problem to figure out where it started, where it branched off, uh, who do I go to? Uh, sometimes it's hard to tell if it's an internal issue with our own library system or if the vendor did not set up your permissions correctly. And so there's just a lot of problem solving that goes into my daily job that I didn't realize I would have when I got into it, but I really like it. It exercises my brain thoroughly during mm-hmm. the day, which is what I want out of a job, is to to use myself and feel like I flex those muscles every day.
0: How long have you been in this field?
1: About 10 years, and I've specialized in electronic resources for seven of those.
0: What compelled you to pursue librarianship?
1: I was an English literature major, and I didn't want to teach, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) I ended up um, working at my undergrad's library and realized that it was a place where I could see myself at. I always loved books. I could be around books all the time. But yeah, it became just a good fit for how I could use my skills and my interests.
0: Well, I'm glad it led you where it did. Alyssa, I've gotten a repeated comment from librarians these past couple months and I'm wondering if you could speak to what they're saying so, we've run some blog posts on Modern Mrs. Darcy, and I've done some Instagram stories about how my family is using library resources right now for ebooks and audiobooks and the databases, even. Like, we wanted to buy a piece of fitness equipment. And we're not subscribers to Consumer Reports, but I just went in through my library research tools and fired up the Consumer Reports guide to the best fitness trainers, blah, 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 blah because I am a member of my local public library. But the feedback I've heard from librarians is, thank you for reminding people they can use our resources now. And what struck me about that is, first of all, it just seems to kill librarians to think that people wouldn't be able to use the library at all just because the physical doors are closed. But also how personally so many of the people who work in libraries take their job like their job is to put resources in people's hands and when that's not happening they hate that yes
1: I totally agree with the sentiment that's been expressed Uh, a message that our library has been sharing to our campus as we have been physically closed is that campus is online and so are we and that's Really, how it is every day, anyway, for us, but people kind of forget. You get into that routine of how you use the library in one way, like maybe going in physically to borrow a book, and you forget that there are other ways that you can interact with the library as well. It doesn't appear in everyone's mind that they can use that service, maybe.
0: I love what you said about how people get used to using the library in one way, and how in the times we find ourselves in, they're learning that there are other ways to use it
1: or even maybe realizing that the library was always set up for you to use it in other ways. You just didn't think about it. It's interesting how much our jobs when we're doing them well you don't know that we exist <laughs> and then when there when there's a problem you know we'll step in and help figure it out so a lot of how i feel our successes is, is the amount in which things work smoothly and you don't know that you have people who specialize in electronic yeah. resources helping you out on
0: the back end okay speaking of the bliss of taking things for granted You said that you were constantly distracted by the new and shiny books that you borrowed from the library, even though your unread shelf has lots of good older titles that you've collected from used bookstores and book sales over the years. Were those physical books you were checking out from the library?
1: Often? Yes. I'd say I read probably about 70% print books. Now it's definitely more heavy on the ebooks. Um but our waiting lists for ebooks are pretty long at my library for the new ones. So I can yeah. often even get a hold of a print new book faster than an e book that's new.
0: Alyssa, since you help others read in a different way, I'm honored to be helping you read in a different way. Can we get into your unread shelf now? Yes. All right, let's do this. You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and we'll explore what you should read next. How did you choose these?
1: I chose these by looking at what I've read in the past year or so and what I just have really enjoyed recommending to friends. If I want to talk about a book, I take that as a good sign that I really enjoyed it.
0: Ooh, I like the sound of that. Okay, so on that note, tell me about the first book you love.
1: The first one is The Dutch House by Ann Patchett. And I know that's been talked about a few times on your podcast already. Uh, But I actually listened to this one on audio. I am a bit of a sucker for Tom Hanks. The audio recording read by him was just awesome. The book itself is a story of a family and a house. We see several generations being shaped by this house in their lives. And so the house seem to both invite and reveal the dysfunction in their family and you kind of see how that's worked through in the story the house becomes a symbol that they have to overcome in their lives
0: that is some serious English major talk and I like it I can't help it (laughs) (laughs) just do what comes naturally what's your second book Alyssa
1: The second one I really enjoyed is a very recent read, The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. Mm -hmm. And this one I really enjoyed. I finished it in about two days, which is pretty fast for me. What stuck with me more about the book wasn't the story itself, which was really good. Um, We're seeing a Ponzi scheme that's kind of tentacled out into an international level. You see how different characters are... Affected or involved in this scheme, and the story kind of hops around from person to person without actually losing track of what it's trying to accomplish, which I thought was really impressive. Often, when a book switches between characters a lot, I get confused for a little bit, and this one was just very smooth. The storytelling style just kind of carried me along with it. But what really stuck out to me was just the feeling I got from the book. It kind of felt a little bit otherworldly, and you know, it's set in a world very much like ours, almost entirely like it. There's just a few little pieces of fantasy in it. But I don't know, for me, I got this like kind of ethereal sense of of the writing of the storytelling style. And that's really what stuck with
0: me. I really like the way you describe that. Okay. Okay. So those are two very recent new releases were those library borrows
1: one was and then the glass hotel i actually got an advanced copy of at a conference a library conference and i got to meet emily st john mindell and get it autographed by her so that makes that one a little bit more special too
0: very fun Alyssa. what did you choose for your third favorite
1: the third one that i chose was save me the plums by ruth Reichel. i wanted to make sure i kind of captured memoir kind of nonfiction reading that i enjoy and this one for me is very escapist um it's about Ruth Rachel's time at the magazine Gourmet, kind of a realm of writing and editing that, you know, I could have gone as an English major, but I just chose not to go that path. And so it's really fun to see what it looked like to be involved in editing a magazine, and especially when they were going through some financial troubles as well. What really stuck with it was just how Ruth Rachel tried something new that she didn't 100% know how to do. And I found it just really brave um, as she talked about the risks that she took and the community that she found in it and how she kind of learned how to savor the small things um, as she was trying this new risky thing for her. And it hit me at the right time, too, because I had taken on some extra responsibility at work and that was feeling a little bit scary and risky as well. And so it was kind of like she was giving some encouraging words as I was reading her memoir.
0: Oh, I love that. Uh, Reading about her trying something new. And also the publishing industry for magazines collapsing around her is emboldening for you. I don't know how the collapse of the industry actually felt for you. But I mean, you know, you knew that she was going to reinvent her career again. Yes.
1: And I think this was actually the first thing I'd read by her. And I, I have gone and read at least one more book since.
0: I'm glad to hear that. I mean, the point of what should I read next is to help listeners and guests find their next read. But I still got to tell you, I just love her. And I'm glad to hear that you you found her and you're reading more.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about food writing, but it takes you somewhere new, somewhere different. And that's always fun to read about as well.
0: Alyssa, now tell me about a book that wasn't right for you.
1: So one that wasn't right for me was Paris and Love by Eloisa James. In my mind, this should have ticked all my boxes. It's memoir. It's about... Paris. I studied abroad there in undergrad, and so I'm always drawn to memoirs or novels set in Paris. And she's talking about this time that she spent to take a sabbatical, move her whole family to Paris, and experience the city as Americans living there for a year. But it was just missing depth. Um, I found out later that a lot of it was taken from short Facebook posts that she wrote during her time in Paris and after learning that, it definitely reads like that. It, there's a lot of thoughts that aren't very connected. Um, it's not really telling a story in any way. And then it just didn't go as deep as I was hoping. There wasn't in really many significant reflections on her time in Paris. It was a, just a lot of snippets of this happened. And yeah, that anecdote was amusing, but it was just a bunch of anecdotes at the end. I, it was missing that depth that I was really wanting from a memoir.
0: So it sounds like it was more journal than... Reflection?
1: Yes. I don't really care to read other people's journals. (laughs) Maybe that's what it is in the end.
0: Interesting. I mean, I know a lot of readers will say that they enjoy a memoir that wasn't written immediately after the thing that they're writing about, but that has the benefit of time so that they can Mm -hmm. see it from a distance and tell a a story that feels like it has some measure of completion about it. I agree.
1: And there was one that I read off my shelf um, very close to this one called Paris to the Moon by Adam Gopnik. I think since I'd read it first and it had some depth of reflection, as well as talking about his time spent living in Paris as an American, I think I kind of ended up comparing them in the end. And that made the second one I read, Paris and Love, fall a little short because it hadn't reached that depth that Adam Gopnik's book had.
0: Okay. Is it a coincidence that those were both Paris books? Oh, no.
1: (laughs) Because I studied abroad there, I kind of tend to collect books that have Paris in them somehow. I think that's great.
0: What have you been reading lately, Alyssa?
1: I just finished A Well-Behaved Woman by Therese Ann Fowler, Mm -hmm. and I am currently working on City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert.
0: How are those going?
1: I really enjoyed um, A Well-Behaved Woman. It was an interesting glimpse into the Vanderbilt life A City of Girls is also really fun, and I enjoy the sewing aspects that's in there. I didn't realize that was in there when I picked up the book, um, but I've been enjoying it so far.
0: Interesting. So, Alyssa, what are you hoping for in your reading life right now?
1: I am hoping to kind of strike a good balance between a good story, whether fiction or memoir, but then also figuring out what it is about these books on my unread shelf that made me buy them and put them there in the first place. I've kind of lost some of the why I want to read all of these books. And if you can get a little bit of help from you to kind of pique that interest again, that would be great.
0: Okay, so I feel like we're doing some kind of bookshelf diagnosis here. Since our listeners can't see your list, I'm going Mm -hmm. to describe it a little. I'm looking at a Goodreads list that's called Unread and Owned. There are 114 titles on it. The most recent addition was The Paris Hours by Alex George that was added April 9th of this year. There are a lot of titles that were added all in a one-week period back In late 2018, the oldest book on this list is The Count of Monte Cristo, which you added in December 2018. And there's a nice mix of literary fiction. I see a ton of short stories. There's some um, like self-development books and some devotional books. There's some narrative nonfiction like Eric Larson. There's a lot of food stories. Mm
1: -hmm. You
0: cover a lot of ground here.
1: I I like variety.
0: (laughs) So how do you feel? What do you see when you peruse your own unread but owned list, Alyssa?
1: I end up seeing a fair amount of backlist titles. Often I get the newer book from the public library and I'm interested in the author, so maybe I'll find an older book at one of the library book sales or at a local used bookstore and I'll grab it and add it to my shelf. I definitely see that I tend to buy more nonfiction overall, I think, than fiction just because Often I want to keep that nonfiction book out from the library longer than three weeks to let me have it. Um, If I want to really savor it and go through it slowly, I see myself often buying the nonfiction to have on hand for that longer read. And then the fiction is like the quicker turnaround that I can actually keep up with the library deadlines on those. Um, So that's kind of some trends I've noticed in my own,
0: what I've owned. As I peruse these 114 books... For our purposes today, I'm just skipping over the personal growth and like the devotional books. Although I can say that I did notice that you have a good number of books that might be, if you're this kind of reader, right at home on your nightstand. The kind of book that doesn't need to be read in order, that you can dip in and out of, that you might just wanna read a little bit in the morning or before bed. The ones that really jumped out at me that based on our conversation, I think you may find it rewarding to prioritize are Dream More by Dolly Parton. I mean, talk about reflections over events that happened a long time ago from a woman who clearly has a well-developed philosophy of doing business and also will make you laugh if you want to do that before bed. So that's Dream More. It was actually a Dolly Parton commencement speech that got turned into a book. Oh, commencement speech she gave in East Tennessee, Where You Are.
1: Yes. Dolly is very popular around here, so that would be very fun. I mean,
0: come on, Dolly's popular everywhere. How could she not be? (laughs) But I'm sure it's next level where you are. It is. Felicity by Mary Oliver seems like a good one for that. And also The Next Right Thing by Emily Freeman, another podcast guest. This is like a walk down memory lane today.
1: You can tell that I follow this circle of folks who
0: (laughs) interact
1: with each other, which is great. It's a great combining of worlds and gets you to understand each person that you follow a little bit better.
0: That's really fun. And I hope hearing them speak about their work and their interests and their lives brings an extra dimension to the story. I have to say, based on what we've talked about today, I can see why these loan to 2020 releases on your list are there. There's the Paris Hours by Alex George because, I mean, it caught your eye because it had Paris in the title. It's also been very well reviewed by critics. So if you want to indulge that shiny and new itch. That's a great place to do it. And also we started by talking about the behind the scenes of the writing process and how things are put together and how it all happens. And Writers and Lovers by Lily King that just came out in March is a perfect one for that. I mean, it's the journey of a writer from a young woman whose life is not great on any level into just a really exuberant, happy ending, both personally and professionally. It's so fun. I can also tell you that As I was perusing your list, the titles wanted to sort themselves into book flights like all on their own. Do you know what I mean when I say book flight?
1: Yes, and that's actually how I've kind of been picking what to read while I'm here at home and trying to choose from my shelf is I've kind of been collecting two or three at the same time. At least it helps me know what to read next if I have a few already piled up, but I do kind of see myself picking things kind of similar themed and then reading those and then moving on to something else. So I'd love to see what you're seeing.
0: So you enjoy doing a theme at a time and then moving on? Yeah. Okay
1: at least right now. That's what's keeping it interesting while I've been at home for weeks on end.
0: (laughs) Well, some of these flights aren't very original, but I don't know. Some of them could be fun. And listeners, when I say book flights, I would recommend you Google a post and we'll put it in show notes too that I wrote on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, like forever ago in 2012 or 2013. It's called Reading is Better When It's Done Wine Tasting Style. And the idea of a book flight, which I wholly invented, is that in the same way that you could sample a variety of... Of um, different vintages or varietals or years of a certain wine for the benefit of comparing and contrasting because that brings more to your experience and helps you better appreciate the nuance of each individual selection. A good book flight can do the same. So some of these flights are so obvious, Alyssa, like you definitely have a foodie flight going.
1: Most definitely.
0: Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabrielle Hamilton seems right up your alley. You've got two Ruth Reichel selections, a fiction and nonfiction. And also, I just have to put in a plug for Buttermilk Graffiti because Edward Lee is a local chef to me in Louisville and it fills my foodie bookish heart with joy to see people reading it.
1: Those all sound great, delicious and
0: great. <laughs> they sound delicious. I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we talked about the books that might be right at home on your nightstand. One of the flights I saw these titles sorting themselves into was just some of my favorite books are on here. You had Crossing to Safety. You had the Lola Quartet by Emily St. John Mandel, which could be really interesting to read now because the story is so different, but the style is similar, which I would not have thought possible necessarily. Because so much of the feeling, like you said, of reading *The Glass Hotel* seems to be in the style of the book. So how do you do that again in a whole different world? But she does it there. *Writers and Lovers*, I love this year. Also *The Namesake* by Jhumpa Lahiri. All those books are atmospheric, evocative, are well done, and so they are able to transport you to another world. And by well done, I mean well written. Like they may not be to your taste, listeners, but I really think that the author set out to do a thing. And whether you like it or not, they did the thing. Okay, you have a lot of classics on here, and many readers are taking advantage of this time at home with their unread books to finally tackle those classics. I noticed also that you had a lot of mid-century women writers, like Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath. You want to tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think those I ended up picking up probably as a result of having been an English major and maybe reading one work by these women, but not going into their other works and kind of wanting to expand and read them. And again, since I think it might take me a little bit longer than three weeks to do these works justice, I don't like to read them on a library deadline schedule. I'd rather have them in my home so I can read them slowly and really enjoy them and kind of experience them maybe a little bit more so as I would have if I was in an English class with a professor without all those deadlines for writing a paper about what I'm reading. I hear
0: that. This is like a mini book flight. There's just two, but you've got a Florida flight going on. And I noticed that those books were actually quite close to each other on... No, they are back to back on your Goodreads shelf. I wondered if that was coincidence or not.
1: Probably was coincidence. What did I have? I remember I have Florida by Lauren Groff. You do.
0: And you also have Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston.
1: I forgot okay. about that one.
0: And finally, I would say you have a fair amount of compulsively readable literary fiction you and there's some cluster there with my favorites but you've got some of those books that are written for popular audiences they're going to sell a ton of copies but they are wonderful page turners for readers and I'm talking about like the works of Sue Monk Kidd and Barbara Kingsolver especially jumped out at me you've got several of those Uh, Lisa Ko is another one there and also just so many short story collections so many
1: I hadn't realized that I had done that to myself until I was looking at this list and thinking, yeah, I have collected short stories. I wonder why. I was
0: wondering why. You don't have an answer for that?
1: Not really. It's not my usual go-to. I know I have the Flannery O'Connor books because my undergraduate institution is actually where she graduated from, um, Georgia College in Milledgeville, Georgia. And so, of course, we got exposed to her works as English majors at the university she graduated from. I kind of collect those works when I come across them. I've read several like Anne Lamott books lately that kind of work as short stories, but also short essays. So I've noticed myself kind of getting more into the essays as well. Maybe I'm just looking for things I can take in in a shorter amount of time rather than focusing on a long work. Okay.
0: I was thinking about the direction we were going to go, and now I think you've just cemented Mm -hmm. it. So you're an English major,
1: recovering apparently, a recovering English
0: major <laughs> who graduated from Flannery O'Connor's alma mater who owns the complete stories who felt compelled to purchase this book but haven't read it I think we're going to build our flight by starting here okay let's start with the complete stories of Flannery O'Connor I'm assuming it's been on your shelf for longer than it actually got added to Goodreads
1: okay yes I don't think I started using Goodreads until a few years ago so that's how everything got added do you once. remember when you bought
0: this book or where
1: I think it was um, a used bookstore copy because I think that exact edition is just beautiful. And so <laughs> they had it and it was a reasonable price. And I've been wanting the collection
0: anyway. Do you have the one with the peacock on the front? Oh, it is yes. so pretty. Okay. So Flannery O'Connor is a, actually, you know what? You had a lot of, um, a good number of Southern classics from the mid century on your list as well. So she's a good example of that if you wanted to build out your literary curriculum. But what's special about this volume is it has a lot of stories, including quite a few that didn't appear in the story collections that were published in her lifetime. And those are classics that many of us read in high school. And I hope that didn't turn us off Flannery O'Connor forever. But those are Everything That Rises Must Converge. And the first Flannery O'Connor story I ever read, which was A Good Man is Hard to Find. I mean, my 16-year-old self just did not know what to do with that story. Like, it's funny, but is it okay to laugh? She's Mm -hmm. so good at what she does. So in this collection, you also have titles like The River, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, The Comforts of Home is another that some literary lovers really love. And I think that as someone who throws around words like, you know, structure and theme, that you're going to really enjoy exploring her work.
1: I really appreciate what she does as a writer, how she flips your expectations as you're reading. So yeah, I agree. I think this one would be that a That is a one. great
0: way to put it. You also had Eudora Welty on your list. The Optimist Daughter is on your unread shelf. If you wanted to read those two women together, I don't think that would be a bad thing at all. I mean, seriously, it would be build your own curriculum. Okay, I agree. from there, let's pivot to that Lauren Groff collection. She is a talented living working writer i was just thinking recently that we're probably going to hear about a new book coming from her soon florida is her short story collection that came out immediately after the publication of her book fates and furies which got a ton of buzz i mean barack obama said that it was his book of the year so i don't know where you go from there if you're a writer she (laughs) is from the state of florida and all these stories have a strong sense of place she shows you a series of characters, some of whom seem to be the same woman, but it's never entirely clear. Some of these feel apocalyptic. Some of these feel like echo fiction, like we talked about with Katie Yoakum. There's one that I thought was particularly like, oh my gosh, edge of my seat. Who? How do you come up with this stuff? Um, it's called Eyewall, and it's about a woman who's riding out a hurricane in her house, So I think considering you have so many short stories and we're doing the Flannery O'Connor, which is old, I love the idea of doing a newer one for you. And also pretty soon she's going to have a shiny new novel, I would imagine, on the shelves of the library when we're there again. And I love the idea that it could be a bridge from your unread shelf to your current shelf. But also just to hopefully seal the deal, not all of these stories are set in Florida. She goes one time to Brazil and several times she goes to France. That
1: sounds like a good hook for me. so.
0: That's Florida by Lauren Groff. And finally, I do like the idea of continuing our theme here with Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And I think that would be really interesting to read right on the heels of the Lauren Groff and the Flannery O'Connor. I got to say, Alyssa, this story is not on the surface um, one that bears much resemblance to the favorites you selected today. The Dutch House, The Glass Hotel, Save Me the Plums. And yet you also said you really like variety and how a good story can sometimes be a feeling. This book, it's now more than 80 years old. It's often revered as a classic. And yet so many people are familiar. They know the name. They know the author. But they've never read it. And they don't understand how meaningful it is to so many readers and to literature in general. And I wouldn't share that with everyone as a selling point. I mean, I know that a lot of readers, if you say the language was so beautiful, they're like, yep, that means it's boring and I'm moving on, but you're an English major and (laughs) that is okay.
1: That means I will give it a chance. I'm glad to hear it.
0: So this story is set in rural Florida and it was revolutionary at the time for having a black female protagonist looking for love on her terms. You see her try and fail early in the story. But finally, she does find this husband whose name is Tea Cake. I mean, that's not his real name, (laughs) but that's what everybody calls him. And that's what Janie calls him. He's all wrong for her. He's too young. He's not of her way of life. He's unconventional, as you might guess by the fact that he asks everybody to call him Tea Cake, but she loves him. (laughs) And in this story, you find out, Why? And you find yourself wanting to cheer her on and just see the world she portrays is so different than the one you and I live today, just by virtue of time and place, identity and who you are in the world. And if that isn't enough, then Janie takes their story in a direction that I think it's a wonder that more of us don't see coming just because often like it feels like spoiling the classics is fair game. But this story does take a new and surprising direction. Janie is forced to make a really difficult choice. What Was Zora Neale Hurston setting out to accomplish and why did she make those choices and what did she want to show? Now, that is definitely an interesting question that you may enjoy exploring because you're interested in that kind of thing. We could have a rousing book club on this topic, but I think you'll be glad to have taken this journey back with Zora Neale Hurston to 80 years ago, to finally cross this classic off your list that you were interested in enough to pursue. And the idea of reading it clustered with other strong female writers writing in either similar times or similar places, sounds like it could be interesting on a whole other level to you. How does that sound?
1: That sounds great. Probably by reading a few of these next to each other will probably give me more insight and thoughts and enhance the experience more than maybe if I would read them separately. Well,
0: I hope you find that to be the case. And I also just want to point out if you're looking to cluster a little more, you do have so many classics that can make a really nice quarantine classics flight. Like you have books that are about writers. Like you have A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, you have Crossing to Safety, you have Writers and Lovers. You have some seriously symbolic classics like David Copperfield, Until We Have Faces and The Lord of the Rings. You have so many great women writers piling Sylvia Plath or Edith Wharton on top of those books that we just talked about could be Really fruitful as well. There's a lot you can do here. I know it's easy to grow accustomed to what's on our own shelves and kind of lose that like first burst of excitement that we have when we brought the physical book into our life, like as its owner. But I'm really excited about the possibilities of what you could find here in this collection the books that you own, but you know, the time has just never been right to read. I hope in talking about these books today, you've rekindled some of that initial enthusiasm you had for them.
1: Yes, most definitely. Now I'm seeing them a little bit differently and a little bit more excited about what I have here in the house. Of the
0: books we talked about today, The Complete Stories of Flannery O'Connor, Florida, The Short Story Collection by Lauren Groff, and Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. What do you think you will read next?
1: Sounds like it's going to be tough, but I think I'll have to start with Flannery O'Connor, given my connection to her, and uh, yeah, see where it goes from I love there. the sound of that,
0: and I can't wait to hear what you think. Alyssa, thanks so much for talking books with me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Anne.
0: Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Alyssa today, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. And hey, let me know if you'd craft any book flights from your unread shelf. Our friendly comment section is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 237. And that's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can see those beautiful handcrafts Alyssa and I talked about on her Instagram at Alyssa Makes. That's at Alyssa, E-L-Y-S-S-A, makes. Subscribe to What Should I Read Next now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Vogel. That's Ann with an E, B is in Books O-G-E-L. Find us on Instagram at Ann Vogel and our All Books All the Time account at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the what should I read next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, go to what should I read next podcast.com/slash newsletter to get our free weekly delivery. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would love your support. Would you share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you'd like, check out my books. I'd rather be reading The Delights and Dilemma of the Reading Life, and don't overthink it, my newest offering. Thanks to the people who make the show happen, What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.